Hello and welcome to the Imagine Media Futures podcast. I am your host Tejas Nair, a new media artist and co-producer of the IMIT Media Arts Festival. This series features insightful conversations between Australian and Indian creatives about the future of independent media and creative ecosystems while discussing business remodeling and adapting through the pandemic, cross-cultural collaboration and strategies for effective audience outreach and engagement in the post-COVID-19 world. We hope that this series will act as a catalyst to forge sustainable collaborations between Indian and Australian practitioners to creatively respond to future opportunities. The Media Futures podcast is brought to you by AsiaLink Arts, the Australian Consulate General in Mumbai, and IMIT Media Arts Festival. Today, we're going to be discussing the search for ethics in the work that we do. And we're going to look at this through the lens of equalizing voices. And our guests for today are Michaela Jade from InDigital and Shreya Nagarajan from SNS Arts Development Consultancy. Hi, Shreya. Hi, Michaela. How's it going? Hi, Tejas. Hi, Michaela. Thanks for having me. This is very exciting. It's my first podcast, so I'm thrilled. Hello. Great. Thank you for having me. Well, amazing. It's it's an absolute pleasure to have both of you on here. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to our chat. Um, but before we dive into that, can I ask each of you to give our listeners a brief introduction on yourself and the work that you do? Uh, Michaela, if you want to go first. Thank you. Well, I'm the CEO and founder of an Australian Indigenous edu technology startup called InDigital. And we work to close the digital divide between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people by teaching digital skills through a cultural lens. My name is Shreya Nagarajan Singh and I'm the founder director of uh, SNS Arts Development Consultancy, which is based in Chennai, but we have a presence in Chicago and Bombay as well. What we do is completely helping artists uh, organizations, festivals, anybody in the arts really, helping them with the business end of things um, really looking at how do they generate revenue, how do we pitch for sponsors, basically helping them uh, figure out a good business model uh, for now and the future. Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, both of you, for sharing. Uh, just to sort of shed some light on what we're going to try and discuss today, um, there's there's a huge uh, conversation globally uh, and an important one around uh, cross-cultural collaboration, um, considering there are so many stories that are often indigenous to various parts of the world that are now have the opportunity through technology and the internet to come to life uh, in, in ways that may not require for people to be physically present in the same space. And and I, I think we certainly believe that new media platforms are, are sort of a unique vehicle to democratize uh, arts as well as amplify voices uh, of indigenous as well as marginalized uh, communities and peoples. The hope is with this conversation, we can look at the possibilities of how these platforms um, can enable uh, these global communities to engage and collaborate uh, while opening up to new audiences and developing new partnerships, new collaborations. Um, and also, we'll be looking at this uh, through a very focused lens of India and Australia, both uh, countries with an amazing wealth of uh, indigenous knowledge, art forms, uh, craftsmanship, and, and you know um, other amazing stories. First up, I want to ask uh, Shreya, if I may, uh, how would you describe the inspiration behind the work that you do uh, with artists uh, from various communities? Absolutely. Um, 
you know, very early on when I started working in the arts field, I just I, I started off as an artist. I'm a classical, uh, trained classical dancer. And I think everybody was sort of in the mode of just producing, right? And not really looking at where's the demand and how are we presenting it, how are we positioning it in the market, etc. And I think uh, that sort of is what led me down the whole arts management um, field. And then, you know, I have two masters now and I've worked with clients all over the world. And through that, I think what inspires me is really helping artists figure out, right? Uh, because sometimes it's, it's very overwhelming for them uh, and it's... Um, this is, there is a method to the madness, and I think that's what I like to bring to the table, and uh, that's what I enjoy when I'm able to fix those problems, uh, even for myself, right? When you suddenly feel like, okay, doing things in a systematic manner, in a professional manner, makes a huge difference in trying to uh, sort of upskill for artists, but also build a stronger structure when it comes to presenting the arts, Um so that's really what inspires me and, you know, working very closely with the artists and helping them sort of find um, some sort of uh, meaningful way that they, beyond the satisfaction they get from the art, right? But just saying socioeconomically as well, helping them figure out how to raise funds and things like that, uh, superbly have a very long-lasting impact on the way they work. And I can see that influence in their subsequent works once they know they have secure funding or they know they have a certain set of performances already scheduled for a new for a new work I can see how differently they begin to work you know um, and, and that shows in the artwork so that's really what inspires me uh, otherwise it's just one more one more person in the whole big field of the arts wow fantastic thank you so much for sharing and Michaela how about yourself well, I was inspired to start this work because as a Cabrigal woman, um, I was disconnected from my culture growing up and it wasn't until I was an adult that I was identified as being a Darug woman, in fact, being from the Cabrigal uh, clan of people in the Sydney Basin. And I wanted a way to reconnect with cultural stories on country because I would go back to my country where we have petroglyphic rock art that's tens of thousands years of years old and I wouldn't be able to understand what I'm supposed to be learning from these incredible cultural sites. And I first saw augmented reality in 2012 and thought, oh, my gosh, imagine we could make an application that you put your phone over the rock art and our traditional owners could appear and I was envisaging holograms even back then um, and speak to people who are in our country about what we were supposed to be learning there um, because the only way that that information is conveyed in Australia in a national park setting is a sign. Um, and it's never from our voice. It's never from our old people. Um, people aren't paid for the content that's being shared at the site. And I really wanted to completely change this paradigm of how we value um, cultural knowledge, language and law on country. Um, so I made an application um, that did all that. <laughs> um, and then as I worked with communities around Australia in augmented reality, I just realised there is an incredible digital skills gap for our people. And I wanted to change that because the way that we've always told stories as Aboriginal people has been through dance, through storytelling, through artworks, through sculpture. Um, there's so many ways that we tell stories and I felt like the technology had finally caught up with that. And, and what I mean by that is the technology can show us our cultures in three dimensions, the way that we've always thought about culture. 
Um, yeah, and then I went to the United Nations and realised there was 400 million first peoples around the world that were having the same problem. So we set about building a digital skills program that teaches people with very low digital literacy and very low literacy how to create augmented reality content so they can start sharing culture, sharing language, sharing knowledge and also earning um, potential income from that new skill. Thank you for sharing. I, I want to present a question to both of you uh, regarding the representation of um, traditional art forms and and uh, not just the art forms themselves, but also the representation of history, of, of where those art forms come from, um, and also making it very much a part of uh, the mainstream of pop culture, of making it accessible for people to... Um, as you mentioned, not just see a sign, but also understand uh, the story behind uh, the name or the place or uh, the artifact. That is a very, like you said, a pretty challenging uh, problem that we're all facing, right? Uh, it comes down, I think, to um, the audiences, right? And who these certain forms, uh, certain whether it could be visual art or performing art, who are they really trying to target and what is really their market? So if you go, let's say, um, to you know, some of the areas in the Kanchipuram district, which is uh, just very close to Chennai, you'll see a lot more of like uh, folk f performances, uh, like Kate Kutu and Pare and things like that. And I know those those spaces have uh, that sort of audience and that audience loves uh, that sort of content and loves that, that sort of performance. Now, maybe perhaps putting something very traditional, let's say a, a Carnatic music performance in the middle of a very rural area, I would love to see because that, that is a reverse sort of diversity I think that we can also think about. But the question is how well will it be received and uh, and vice versa, right? Uh, so it really questions, the question happens is, where is is uh, looking at curators, right? For the people who organize these sort of festivals or even organize um, smaller programs, but in a regular fashion, like once a month and things like that. Uh, it's looking at them and saying, hey, are you sort of trying to just uh, appeal to your base or are you trying to bring some sort of diversity? And I know uh, from an organization standpoint, the question is not uh, of diversity pages. I think everybody does want to have a diverse um, group of artists from various different uh, communities almost perform, but I know the question is bankability, right? If I bring in a certain artist who is not a regular performer or a new art form, like how will that fare? How is that going to affect my funding? How is that going to affect the whole model of revenue, right? And so that risk, I think, um, that's what I, I think I bring to the table for many curators is saying, okay, if you want to take that risk, let's try and see if we can balance it off by giving two, three very good headliners with, with acts that you know are going to work and use that revenue that you're going to build extra uh, into the, the, the high-risk productions that you want to feature because you want to be diverse, you want to invite people from across the board, people from different states, marginalized uh, art forms. And I think that's what we have to do. So it's not just a question of wanting inclusivity. It's, it's working a model that is actually feasible for the organizer, for the audience, for everything, right? Um, so I think that's where we are right now, and we need to be doing a lot more. But for that, I think the organizers and the curators need to be thinking strategically, uh, and as well as not doing it just as a token, saying, hey, you know, uh, 
I want a woman in this panel or, you know, I want somebody from a certain community to be, to be a part of this just for the sake of it. It needs to work holistically, meaningfully, as well as strategically and financially. And for that, I think we need more education and we need more um, sharper thinking, you know, uh, in, in figuring out how are we going to progress this way. But we have a long way to go. There's just a lot of work to be done. Absolutely. No, I agree. And and I, I like one of the points that you brought up over there is that that relationship needs to also be equitable. So there is a sense of responsibility on both sides of the exchange. Uh, and Michaela, your thoughts uh, on this and the Australian landscape? Yeah, it's really interesting time to be alive as an Aboriginal woman. Um, I think in my channels, I guess I'm in a little bubble at the moment of uh, cultural content and I'm seeing great cyberpunk writers and incredible Indigenous um, artists and musicians and um, computer technologists and gamers. Um, I'm kind of in that world. But when I step out of that world, I still see a lot of cultural voyeurism and a lot of um, representation of our peoples as a homogenous group of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. Of course, we're not. There's 300 different nations of people with different cultures, different language, different um, aspirations for for what they want. Um, and I think something that for new media that's been really confronting for me is we can't sit, we can't really dream about using new media um, to represent our cultures if we never get to see it. There's kind of like this unknown unknown about the possibility space to represent our cultures in technologies and new media. Um, and some of that's because of the cost of it, like some of this new media is incredibly expensive to get involved with. Um, some of it's remoteness. Like we have 25 million people in Australia in the size of a nation the size of Canada. Like <laughs> we have a sparse population once you get outside the cities and these uh, different opportunities don't seem to resonate um, out into remote communities as fast as they do in cities. And I think something that we're, we're kind of crossing the bridge on now is that new media and technology, it's still culture. It's not this, like, um, really interesting thing that fringe dwellers in the cultural space are, are kind of interfacing with now. It's, um, it's still culture. It's still us expressing our cultural protocols and our permissions and um, respect and listening to us and listening to our stories just because we might be doing it in a different way. It doesn't take away from it being culturally authentic and I think that's a really exciting place to be right now where we can express authentically our cultures in new media and arts. Which leads me on uh, to my next point. Certainly new media presents an opportunity for uh, bringing all this hidden wealth of knowledge and information to light in new forms. Uh, but at the same time, there's the concern of it being 360 degrees equitable for all parties involved uh, and for it to make sense. Uh, I, I just want to ask both of you if you can maybe share some examples that you might have been involved in uh, in a professional or personal capacity or uh, projects that you might have seen uh, that you think have used technology and the powers of new media and created this equitable relationship and has done so in a holistic manner. Last year we worked with two very big global corporations um, with our company to develop how to mixed reality platform and uh, one of the organisations, Telstra, who's our massive um, ICT 
communications um, company in Australia uh, wanted to feature us in their Be Enterprising campaign and it was really a feature of their kind of favourite projects from 2020. Um, And we wanted that campaign to be something that our people could be proud of because it was the first time that our people were being represented in augmented reality and mixed reality technologies um, as a national campaign. And we wanted to have the campaign developed cultural protocol way as well, which meant we wanted Indigenous photographers who were photographing the talent. We wanted Indigenous talent. We wanted the permission from elders to film on country and showcase parts of that country. Um, and it it just became apparent that the way global marketing is carried out doesn't allow any of those things, um, at least in Australia. And so it meant doing the campaign from scratch and slowing down and saying, we're going to do this protocol way, we're involving elders, we're involving Indigenous talent. And something that came out of that um, was the talent that was used was a young girl and she was playing with the augmented reality. And she, it was the first time that she'd seen a representation of her culture in a digital medium like that and she was absolutely blown away and she ran back to her mom and said, Mom, this girl looks like me. Um, so there was that kind of scale of impact with the campaign just on set. Um, but then weeks later after the campaign ran, I had people from Parliament House from the press gallery come up to me and saying, that way that you and Telstra ran that campaign is how we want to be able to do journalism and journalistic media. Like, how do we do it? Um, so it started this conversation in Australia and then the next minute um, someone from New York is contacting the marketing manager from Telstra and wanting to shoot cases through as well. So I think even though the focus is on the media that we might be creating, having a look at all the back-end stuff that goes into producing um media and content about the media is just as important as the media itself. I think the one that I'd like to maybe highlight, which has an Australian connection, is a project that I was an arts manager for. um, It was was called Churning Waters. And it was very interesting. It was uh, sort of conceived by uh, Dr. Priya Srinivasan from Melbourne. And uh, we brought basically indigenous artists from uh, Australia as well as uh, you know Katekuta artists which is a rural folk art form from Tamil Nadu uh, along with Karnatic musicians and Bharatanatyam and truly that way it was quite an interesting marriage and collaboration uh, because they'd been working on this for many months and it had to sort of uh, crystallize into something that was meaningful and powerful for all of them and so the whole process was very interesting and I think there what was uh, special because we did it in two, three different cities and each one had to be site-specific, right? So it was not a a model that we could just replicate. And in terms of how we told the story was very different. So um, every at every venue, we sort of used very different spaces in order to tell the same story. In some, we had a huge water body in between. Some, we did under a tree. Uh, what was interesting from a new media concept is that we, we also, um, of course, extensively documented the entire thing uh, and made short and long videos of it, had blogs of it, had writing of it. But we also had a tree of stories, uh, right? So all the artists sort of told stories and we recorded them and just had these headphones hanging in a real tree. And we would just, so it's easy, it's like MP3 players um, that would hang in a tree and everybody who came while they're waiting for the performance to start or, you know, while uh, after it finishes and everybody's just uh, socializing, they could just plug into the uh, headphones and listen to these stories. Uh, it's a literal a tree of stories. So that really upped the experience. But um, looking really at the way 
I think the future is going in terms of being super digital and um, especially with augmented reality uh, and uh, virtual reality. I think there's just so much that needs to be done that I don't think uh, is there yet. But uh, hopefully with a good amount of funding and with Michaela's expertise, we can collaborate on something fun. I really like how uh, in in both examples the technology, uh, as beautiful as it is, doesn't doesn't take away the limelight from the experience. The focus still remains on the narrative, the story, the the imagery that is to be represented, or the story that is to be told. Um, and I think often that's when new media really shines. Is when the technology is not not the main focus, but just enables. Uh, really interesting uh, outcomes. This this kind of leads me to also the challenges of creating this kind of work. The unique challenges it may have presented to uh, the art forms that we're discussing today, especially uh, art forms practiced by indigenous peoples, folk artists, classical artists, uh, artists that are more often but not uh, not really in the limelight the same way cinema and and uh, uh, music and other forms of pop culture are. I think um, in Australia, COVID-19 has really highlighted the digital skills gaps and the inequalities um, that exist between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples in the country. Um, In saying that, Indigenous peoples and particularly our elders and Aboriginal health-controlled organisations have done a phenomenal job in protecting um, the health and well-being of elders and that was prioritised above everything else. Uh, so I think that's something the communities can be really proud of is the way that they've handled the pandemic. Um, but obviously there was um, economic challenges associated that with that where remote uh, area art centres, for example, who would rely traditionally on seasonal tourism for their income um, have had to find other ways um, to be able to uh, share their art forms and a lot of communities have uh, upskilled really quickly in, in e-commerce and um, create, having websites created where they can um, provide a direct link to like direct sell to customers, um, which is not which is also something that they hadn't been able to do in the past. So um, I think the willingness to upskill in new media and new technologies has been very high, and it's been quite exciting to be able to get online and be able to showcase the full depth and breadth of cultural expression in Australia through these opportunities of people bringing themselves um, into an online marketplace, um, which has been really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just like Michaela says, you know, the, the, um, we always knew there was a technology gap, but I didn't think it, it would come so quickly where overnight we sort of had to adapt. And then we suddenly saw so many people who were just not um, who couldn't access that digital economy to generate revenue, especially in times of crisis. So that has been super evident. But I have to say, there are two, three things that happened. Okay, There was a huge shift of power. So the people who sort of had a leg up with having a digital presence, having a, a website, even having you know social media that had significant... Um, following or even if it's not a significant following you're already there you know the wheels are already you know moving and turning so the fact that some people had were three steps ahead of the curve uh, gave them a huge boost and we can see that definitely they grew fast they grew quickly uh, during this lockdown and then the people who had to sort of start an Instagram account on April 1st were really struggling because one they didn't understand the the idea of social and there was just way too much going on for them to even attempt to penetrate right so in terms of 
rural performances and folk arts, you know, I, they were the ones who have sort of been impacted the most for two, three different reasons, because once they lost their audience, and, and unlike other forms, they can't gain their audiences on social that easily, uh, because their typical audiences are the villagers. They perform to the entire village, so the entire village is not going to follow them on Instagram and watch a performance. So that didn't happen. And the second thing is really look, is that their form necessarily couldn't be adapted to uh, digital forms. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what what the entire pandemic and these circumstances we discussed has also done is shed a light on very clear, uh, you know, gaps in, in both education, accessibility, and other, uh, other forms. Um, I want to also ask both of you how your respective work and organizations might have also pivoted uh, due to the pandemic and the lockdown, uh, because although the opportunity for digital exists, like Shreya correctly mentioned, adapting to it isn't a isn't necessarily an overnight process. It can be attempted, but you know there's challenges you discover along the way, and I'm sure both of you have experiences of the same. Yeah, well, we we started a digital skills uh, edutech company in a pandemic, which was um, interesting. So our plans were to deliver face to face and. Uh, I, for one, having lived in remote communities for a really long time, was thinking in my head, it's going to be impossible to teach people digital skills online who never interface with computers ordinarily. (laughs) Um, So some things that we did to run our programs in remote communities was think about what is a non-computer activity that we can introduce the concepts of the computer activity with. And we, we decided like, well, if you're going to do 3D animation and modeling, um, taking that back a step and working in Play-Doh is a great way to say how you make a character. Um, and then we also, we work in Minecraft Education Edition um, as part of our workflow. And we were like, okay, take a step back from Minecraft. That's Lego. So we sent packages of Play-Doh and Lego um, together with curriculums and lesson plans to teachers um, ahead of their training um, so they could work on the concepts of the computer activities um, in physical forms. Um, and then we did the digital skills training online with the teachers and got them equipped to be able to teach the students how to create the augmented reality content. And that included the Play-Doh and the Lego as the workflow for the students. Absolutely. In terms of how we've pivoted is really, uh, I think overnight suddenly everybody woke up, like I was saying, and wanted to do videos and collaborations, but they didn't have a home studio, they didn't have mics, they didn't have cameras. And I'm like, I just was having so many, I told you so moments, but I was like, okay, too late now, everything shut down, you can't even go buy it, everything on Amazon Amazon is sold out, so we just got to figure. Uh, and we did, like uh, Michaela did as well, we had a whole series um, of of tech uh, sort of teaching artists to be technicians because there's nobody to help them. So we did one on how to go live, like how to use basics on social media. And then we did a whole series on arts management, which I felt was so fantastic because the first step whenever I have a client is I have to first educate them on what I do, right? And I say, you know, the artist doesn't have to do everything. You don't have to market and you don't have to curate and you don't have to organize and run operations and run logistics and also perform. Like we will take on a lot of that, right? Understanding what your needs are and so don't worry this is this is this is how the thing goes right you focus on the performance we'll focus on everything else and that could be from selling tickets to finding a sponsorship and so that that uh, 
education was what was really necessary of understanding what the role of an arts manager is and that we got to do in so many different ways we got to help artists we had so many workshops on how do you develop sponsorship pitches how do you develop a donor base uh, leadership and adaptive uh, in adaptive leadership in times of change we did one on audience development so it was really at a much more grassroots level where it was let's go back to the abc's now that you have time and you have energy and and we need to discuss this let's do it and i think coming back to our earlier question as well is the it sort of accelerated the problem solving uh need for that time of the hour it was not like okay this is a distant problem yes eventually folk artists have to sort of go into the digital economy but we'll deal with that later it was sort of like no we need to solve the problem now did this time uh in your opinion encourage uh collaboration across borders um through this you know digital possibility of i think a lot of platforms both social as well as uh professional um interactive platforms have have realized that there is an opportunity that they never realized uh for the longest time and and always thought of it as just a means to communicate uh rather than to interface and be able to build together yeah i think it's been um it's been leveling the whole pandemic thing because it's brought humanity under to have a common experience um and i think that's really helped us connect internationally as just a, a tribe of humans who are going through something extraordinary that's once in a lifetime together in real time um and it i think we've definitely had more inquiries from overseas about the education program that we run because a lot of schools around the world have faced a similar problem where all of a sudden they have to pivot to an online curriculum and they're looking internationally about like how did other people do this <laughs> um and they they're finding us so we've had some really productive conversations with first peoples um in the americas and well, we've always collaborated with people in india so <laughs> that's been amazing um uh completely agree as for collaborations i feel like um you know it's it's gratifying and it's sad in many ways because uh we've tried to do these online collaborations before the pandemic it's just that nobody wanted to do them and now suddenly they are sort of like hey remember you suggested this in 2017 shall we do it now 3 years later and i'm like the idea is so old man let's get on with it let's do something different why do you want to do something that we planned 3 years ago you know so again it comes back to me come back to asking the creative sector and i do this a lot with artists why aren't artists finding out creative ways to solve a problem we are all creative at the end of the day but yet when it comes to problem solving they're super um, to, well almost orthodox some ways and they're like let's not try to do as let's try to change as little as we can in the process right so i'm like the collaborations that have happened that i have at least seen are very textbookish okay you're an artist you're doing the same uh form or you're you're practicing the same thing that i am but except in paris so that's good enough i'm like but why didn't you think of let's say a performing artist or let's say a dancer doing something with a new media artist right why isn't a voice artist think you're working with you know a, a cartoonist something like extremely different you know that i felt didn't happen enough but is it going to continue to happen and what is really the value of these collaborations i'm not entirely sure as yet sorry i'm being super cynical but this is <laughs> this is what it is shreya you touched on something that's dear to my heart too is this like reskilling piece so 
The best riggers and animators that I've ever met are dancers because they really understand body structure and how bodies move and what our bones and muscles do. And when they do take the opportunity to reskill themselves into an animation career, they're just phenomenal at it um, because it's it's intrinsic. They know how to do it. Um, it's just reshaping that skill from being expressed through your own body through expressing it through a digital character. Um, so there are... There are lots of opportunities to bring new insights into um, into animation and 3D um, digital representations of humans, which is really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Great points by uh, both of you, and I, I completely resonate with that uh, as well. And and in, in that light of collaboration, I also want to ask another very important question, and this I feel is, is one which is often scuttered away quite quickly, which is why we need to address it uh, more importantly, um, is uh, there are clearly ethical dilemmas and challenges uh, when when trying to combine worlds, uh, when trying to bring people together that don't necessarily come from the same place. They haven't lived life the same way. They haven't seen the world the same way. Um, and, and at the same time, they come with uh, extremely diverse cultural backgrounds, uh, ethical backgrounds, um, and and there are challenges to bringing those collaborations together. Uh, and when you involve artists from different parts of the world into these uh, global collaborations, um, what are some of these dilemmas that uh, maybe the two of you in your own practices have seen and, and hopefully uh, certain ways in which uh, one could address those whether they are, uh, you know, uh, making tweaks to the manner in which that collaboration is conducted. Yeah, well, um, I come from a peoples that have been colonised for around 240 years and we have extensive um, examples of what can happen to our cultural knowledge, language and law and indeed our entire tribes and cultures when our cultural protocols aren't respected. And I really wanted to avoid that in new media. Um, so before we coded anything, we set about really truly understanding what the cultural protocols and licensing mechanisms should be in a digital space and how we manage that across the entire workflow. And where we really start is on country with our elders in community uh, understanding what the localised cultural protocols are for that place, um, introducing them to our cultural protocols, which really includes us um, working respectfully um, not underestimating uh, our elders and our cultural people's um, understanding of technology. So we go under the hood with them and talk to them about digital sovereignty and data management. Um, we set about licensing agreements, which are very clear about where the um, financial and cultural benefits are for the project and who's going to be paid and when they're going to be paid and who owns the data and what happens to the asset that you create after you've done the program with us. So we go through all of that and make sure that before anything is coded in this program, people really understand where they stand <laughs> culturally, economically um, and also in perpetuity. Um, and we look at um, also moral rights and ethics around, you know, what's the right way to conduct this work. And it really has to be um, co-designed and culturally led the whole way. So what we do is we provide a framework um, and a platform, but the content that is always produced is always um, built from the community. 
and we help facilitate a process where their intellectual cultural property is protected throughout that whole process. So um, we wanted to do it that way. We've had a lot of learnings, of course, um, sometimes communicating um, digital sovereignty and com- concepts around um, data management and um, the internationalization of your cultural intellectual property through new media um, can be tricky to understand, but I think we've reached a point now after doing it for five years where we can really express that in the right way, which is in plain English. <laughs> when I started out, uh, I spoke in technology and a lot of people gave me feedback they didn't really understand it, so I really had to go back and understand what does this sound like to someone that's never heard uh, of the concept of digital sovereignty, for example. So um, that's how we do it. Of course, there are technologies like fire you can cook a beautiful meal with it or you can burn a house down with it so it's just understanding um the intent of creating the content and the intent of where it's going to be shared and being clear that there's no surprises along the way Michaela please just just tell me everything that you did so we can use that as a framework for when we do it because everything you said makes so much sense and it almost feels like oh my god why aren't we doing this you know and I think we're, we're in a very nascent stage. They just, you may, you may know this too. Like we're right now in the process of, okay, forgetting Bollywood and Bombay. You know, I feel like the rest of the country is still like, okay, do you want to come and perform? Or do you want to give me this artwork on rent for three three weeks? Okay, I'll just send you a WhatsApp text. I'm like, no, can you please have something on paper? Can we have some sort of agreement, you know, um, of what's going to happen if something is damaged? You know, who's going to pay for it? People don't want to have these conversations. They just want to sort of grasp that opportunity. And so they, in the process, don't want to talk about this, both sides. Uh, and, 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 and I think it's my job at many of the times saying, no, we need to clear this up because more often than not, it's the artist or the main creator who is hurt in the process. And But looking at copyright and IP, especially in this new sort of COVID world is, is something that we talk about a lot. And I warn artists, just before you put everything online, think about who's going to, um, be consuming it, who's using it, and if somebody's going to copy you and do something exactly identical but with a different color scheme, like, are you ready to go after them, right? And are you ready to fight that battle? And most often the word is no. But it's again just because of the, just because of the field is so informal and everybody's like, it's fine, I'll just do something else, you know. And, and that IP is never, um, truly, I think, uh, valued and, uh, invested in in the first place right because if they had some checks and balances in the beginning it wouldn't have happened in the first place and we're still in that process so I feel like what you've done is so fantastic I just want to follow those footsteps but in terms of uh, like you said the just something that I am learning as well and I'm educating my clients as we work is sort of you know understanding um, what are the right terms to use right and making sure we understand uh, privilege and um, uh, and in power structures in a very different way. And that's something I know I learn every day and uh, and I continue to learn because everybody around me is also continuing to learn because it's very easy and usually, you know, collaborations and new ideas are sort of spearheaded by the elite. I'm going to say this because they have access to the funding and they have the worldview sometimes of looking at other people doing something else and that sort of sparks the idea, right? And that power structure, when you invite people from marginalized communities 
to become a part of a mainstream program is is super important because you have to understand yourself uh, as that person and your privilege and your access to resources and your just your life uh, of how how you've come to where you are versus some of the other artists you might be working with and and then create then i really think it's an equal sharing of experience and coming up with something together like what Michaela was saying is that you have to let that happen right but for that collaboration to happen equally the person everybody needs to understand where they're coming from and more often than not people of upper class and upper caste need to understand that sometimes they just need to be quiet and they need to be at the sidelines cheering other people on and that's again super important because we're all not going to grow the same way we're all going to grow differently but it's important to give everybody space to do that rather than sort of be there enough for them to feel like they can't really say what they want to say or create the way they want to create because of the impressions that they might make to their fellow colleagues and to their audiences right Totally agreeing and nodding my head with Shreya that the power and privilege structures uh, exist everywhere and especially in technology. Uh, it's it's mostly males, it's mostly um, white males that are involved in the technology sector in Australia at least and even having a seat at the table and being female and doing that um, can be really confronting and when I was starting out with the work that I wanted to do, um, I got told a lot by particularly white males that what I wanted to do was impossible and that it was high risk and that there was no money involved in what I wanted to do and there was a lot of assumptions around the capability of First Peoples to interface with cutting-edge technologies like you just can't do it. And my response after a while, like I was living in a remote area, I was like I don't really have to put up with this kind of headspace that you other people are in like we have opposable thumbs as well like we can do this <laughs> like um it was yeah it was really confronting but I I just ignored that to be honest and we just went away and went with our strengths and did what we wanted to do and then when we kind of re we achieved it we made augmented reality in a remote community with no internet and people that had never worked with technology people like oh really interested in how you did that now so i'm going to ask you uh, maybe a couple of more questions before we wrap this up and the most important of the lot is is a huge reason why we're here having this conversation uh it is to explore uh, what the landscape for collaboration and opportunities for collaboration between practitioners in Australia and India uh, currently look like. It'd be amazing to know your thoughts on on how you envision uh, these future opportunities shaping up for collaborations and what these collaborative projects could be about. Yeah, I'd really like to um, work with Shreya on that cultural interpretation intellectual property and licensing and cultural protocols work that we've been through because it has been a long journey to get there um, and that's an area we could probably really um, help and learn from you as well um, we've only done this through the indigenous cultural lens through Australia so it'll be fascinating to see what elements um, Indian cultures bring into the framework that we've um, developed and also working with some of your clients and and helping them see the possibility space for themselves in new media uh, would be incredible. I'd love to do that. But no, you've also done so much work. And I think um, 
that is something that I truly admire and I want to take our artists in that journey. But right now, you know, I feel like we're right now grappling with the grassroots problems of how do we sort of exist right now. So when I talk, think about VR and AR, there's just sometimes, even for me, it's hard to think, right, into deep into the future of how we're going to be using technology. But it's so fascinating to hear all the work that you're doing because I think that is truly because you already have that expertise you already have that system so if we could bring that again especially to uh, artists in, in rural forms to get them into the digital media and into the digital economy uh, and truly transport that experience right across the world that's such a huge untapped market I feel uh, because right now we're all sort of existing in our own small little bubbles uh, no matter though we have the internet we're still very much a very local audience uh, and again going back to call collaboration stages is that many of the things that happen internationally but many people didn't collaborate with somebody who lived two streets away from them that never still didn't happen right and um, hopefully that that is that change that thinking will change because the opportunities are changing and people are sort of ready to think about the future I think one of the first workshops we did in April was a futures workshop, right, uh, with the with uh, the East West Center in Hawaii, who are also my clients. So we really looked at various different possible futures because future is not single; it, it it is plural. So we sort of had artists think about what are these different futures that could exist, and what are your plans within this future? If it's a collapse, how are you going to survive? If it's going to be thriving, how are you going to survive? You know, if it's sustainable, if you know the whole world goes green tomorrow, how are you going to survive? So we kind of, through various different exercises, got artists thinking about that. And again, people are are sort of live in the past and live today, but not really are living for next week or next year or 10 years from now. So that sort of thinking has really pushed them. And I think if you look at a model like yours, which is already being done, it's easier for the artist to sort of fit into that or at least be able to imagine that, right? Now I feel like just if we get artists to imagine the future, that's good enough for me because that's one step that has taken 15 years to happen. Yeah, which is kind of incredible because the future is built off the back of creatives. Like it's it's built off sci-fi um, artists and authors and that's where that's how all this technology gets developed because the idea is seated in the arts um, and that sparks people going, maybe we should build a flying car. Um, yeah, maybe we should do a hologram. <laughs> um, so they, they play this massive part in building the future and connecting those dots for people I think is really important. Absolutely. Wow. Amazing points there uh, from both of you. And, and I have to say, even as, as, uh, as IMIT Festival, a huge focus for us has been to try and explore some of these stories and, and uh, find more meaningful ways for people to collaborate and for us to be able to facilitate that through networks and, and the festival itself. Um, because often, like Shreya, you mentioned, you know, the collaboration is uh, tends to become this fantastical idea that, you know, oh, we can do this and oh, we can do that. But you often forget the things that are right next to you and the and the opportunities that very naturally present themselves without it being forced into a mold, uh, just to, you know, check some boxes. So, yeah, I, I, very, very exciting stuff. And I really hope that um, uh, through this conversation and more conversations after this podcast, we can we can try and connect some of those uh, dots and and hopefully build some uh, work together. Unfortunately for today, that's all the time we have. Uh, I want to thank you both for 
a very, very enriching and very exciting uh, chat. And uh, thank you so much for sharing about your work and, and the inspirations that you draw um, for that work. Um, yeah, just amazing stuff. I, I wish you both all the very best. And if either of you want to share some signing off notes with our listeners, please do. Thank you. Um, I just, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to continue working with people in India. Our cultures are so aligned. Um, we've got way more in common than we have um, not in common. And I really feel at home working with and sharing ideas with people from India. So thanks very much. Uh, these are these are conversations I always look back on big projects and big things that were done by me and others and it always starts with just this coffee table conversation or something else like a dinner and I always like did they know in that time that that idea was going to make a million bucks like probably not and so I'm hoping that this is one of those situations amazing I'm pretty sure it will be we've manifested it now it's out there On that lovely note, uh, thank you both for joining us. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll all be in the same room again, talking about exciting stuff, doing exciting things together. Uh, But until then, take care and thank you so much for your time.